Matthew 21 and beginning at verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant, and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that as we study it, that the responses of our heart would be pleasing in your sight. We commit this time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, the previous week uh, was declared to be National Spring Cleaning Week, uh, the 19th through the 25th of March. Didn't even know they had such a thing, but uh, read about it in the newspaper, and apparently there were a lot of um, responses to that. One woman responded, yeah, National Lay a Guilt Trip Week is what she called it. And uh, another woman responded by quoting Phyllis Diller, said, cleaning your house while your kids are still growing is like shoveling the walk before it stops snowing. And uh, perhaps some of you moms can relate to that. It seems like a never-ending process. And because we're dealing with uh, spiritual spring cleaning today, I thought I would read a list of reasons for cleaning your house that came out two weeks ago. Uh, These are the top 10 reasons that you might need to do spring cleaning. This uh, author starts with uh, number 10 and works down to the most important one. The number 10 reason was, someone asks, what died in here? And you show them. I think in the spiritual realm, there are times where something that was alive and vibrant in your life spiritually has died, and you don't even seem to notice it. Number nine, dust on TV screen gives everybody comical Andy Rooney eyebrows. Uh, You can get used to looking through the dust on your TV or on your computer screen, can't you? At least I can. Uh, You know, it maybe takes a month or two, and I notice, whoa, there is a lot of dust on my TV screen. And you know, in the spiritual realm, that's true as well. We tend to notice the dust on other people's TVs, other people's TV screens. We look right through it on our own. Number eight reason. When you win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, Ed McMahon refuses to get out of the van. (laughs) Number seven. The so-called dust bunnies have sharp snapping teeth. Number six, your house gets hit by a twister, and it actually looks better. (laughs) Number five, guests take one look at your bathroom and decide to use the backyard. (laughs) Number four, when someone from the health department rings your doorbell, you say, not again. Number three, Every time you turn on a faucet, you hear a muffled barking sound. Number two, even Robert Downey Jr. refuses to sleep on your floor. (laughs) 
Number one, you've been receiving death threats from Mr. Clean. <laughs> Spring cleaning. Um, nobody likes to do it, and yet it is a, a necessary chore. Now, I believe it's much better to have regular weekly cleaning, so that the spring cleaning's not quite such a chore. But uh, in, this so- uh, in this passage that we're looking at, Jesus Christ begins to engage in some spring cleaning with people who had not cleaned their lives spiritually in a long, long time. And before we start looking at it, I want you to... Flip back to Malachi chapter 3, and this passage gives a background as to what was going on uh, in their lives during this period. Malachi chapter 3, and uh, verses 1 through 7. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, Matthew's already quoted that part of the verse 1, indicating that was fulfilled in John the Baptist coming. But there's a second person in this verse, namely the Lord Jesus, who comes. And it says, And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. And this coming into his temple is not said to be a pleasant thing for the priests and Levites in verses 2 through 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. And I think that's such a cool image of the cleansing work of the Lord, launderer's soap. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And commentators point out that this was a a precursor. Christ's coming to the temple in, in our passage was a precursor to Israel actually being cut off so that non Israelite branches could be grafted into the olive tree and they could be a true Israel who would serve the Lord. Verse 4 continues, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years, and I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Now, uh, this today's Palm Sunday, and all over America there are people who are uh, celebrating uh, this um, this uh, day, and yet they're celebrating it in a way that's totally foreign, I think, to the spirit of what Christ was doing on Palm Sunday. They're just as humanistic and just as far from God uh, as Israel was back then. Uh, and we need to pray that the king of the church would come and cleanse his church and bring a reformation. In fact, I'm hoping for a reformation greater than any reformation that the world has ever seen before. Uh, And there is a great need for it because liberalism and false theology is tolerated. Gross violations of the law of God are totally ignored. 
And uh, what used to be considered strongholds that the church of Jesus Christ would fight against, things like uh, homosexuality and abortion, are now, right in churches in Omaha, being celebrated uh, as if this is a virtue that God, uh, that God uh, delights in. In fact, let me list for you the issues in the 21st century that have made me weep and beg God for a reformation. False gospels are rampant. The Old Testament law has been thrown out of the church for the most part. There are a few churches that continue to uphold it. Uh, even evangelicals are beginning to question the inerrancy of Scripture, which to me is a remarkable thing because that's an absolutely foundational doctrine uh, in, in all through church history. But they're questioning it. And as a result of the weakening confidence in the biblical wisdom that God has given to us, what do people do? They're looking to the world for their wisdom. And so they will go to psychology. And psychology has almost completely replaced biblical counseling in the church. And they'll go to the worldly wisdom of sociology and anthropology and, and uh, secular economics and and uh, 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 secular leadership theory and all of the departments of wisdom that you can find out there, they have grabbed a hold of the church of Jesus Christ. This, in turn, has caused the church to embrace such things as evolution and um, things like feminism and egalitarianism and statism and socialism and other worldview perversions. And this has led to family disintegration and selfishness and present-orientedness. And so it's no wonder to me that our youth are leaving the church in droves. Why would they not go to the world when that's exactly where the church is constantly looking uh, for its wisdom? And, and so we are in desperate need of reformation. The, the Protestant church has all but replaced King Jesus with a very pleasant mascot who's not going to do anything that makes us uncomfortable. He's certainly not going to drive anybody out of the church. And so if you look at our text, Matthew 21, we're going to begin reading at verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Now, one of the things that you do in spring cleaning is you throw things away. You get rid of things. And I'm sure in our postmodern age, what Jesus was doing here seems totally wrong. Okay, you can throw away things, but you don't throw away people. And yet, if you take the, the gospel seriously, you'll realize that King Jesus is a person who casts people out of the church. We call it excommunication, and it is precisely because the church has failed to engage in church discipline that denomination after denomination has become liberal to the core. That's the main thesis of Gary North's massive book on church history called Crossed Fingers. It shows how so many denominations have become uh, liberal over time. When there is no spring cleaning, year after year after year, those cute little dust bunnies begin to get sharp, snapping teeth, and it's the Bible believers who get devoured. It's the Bible believers uh, who get uh, disciplined in those liberal churches. And so one of the problems with the, uh, the church of Jesus Christ is that the good guys, and they are good guys, the good guys have become too nice to be able to do what Jesus 
is doing in this passage. And so they let the wolves occupy the, the pews until finally the wolves outnumber the sheep. I personally know of churches in Omaha that have not engaged in church discipline for over 50 years, a couple of them in 75 years. Uh, and part of the reason, I believe, is because if you preach, and that's the first part of discipline, is preaching boldly the Word of God, even when it's stepping on toes. If you preach the whole counsel of God, you're going to get some people upset, and they will leave uh, the, 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 the church, and you're going to have the offerings go down, and you're going to have wealthy patrons who will leave. On the other hand, I've known Reformed churches who are far too quick to discipline. They do not have a love that covers a multitude of sins as Jesus was doing in this passage. And so we've got to look at the balance. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into this passage, especially verses 12 and 13. I want you to notice, first of all, who owns the temple. It wasn't Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, he may have thought that he owned the temple, and he certainly acted as if he owned the temple. But verse 12 says that Jesus went into the temple of God. Okay? God owned the temple. And in verse 13, God calls the temple, my house. And yet how frequently do leaders think that the church is their church? and think that it's their empire that they are building and people need to get on board around them. How often do churches gravitate, revolve around the personality of one preacher, and he becomes the defining mark of, of that church? Even in evangelical churches, it happens. But church policies become quite shaped by whether or not you're doing everything to please God, the owner of the church, or whether you're doing everything to please the pastor. Okay, It's a quite different flavor that you're going to be getting. It is God's house, and that makes all the difference into the world as to whose policies that you follow. It's not supposed to be our policies. It's supposed to be God's policies that we follow in the church. In fact, one old Puritan said, and I love this quote, but he said, the only voice that should be heard in the church of Jesus Christ is the voice of Jesus speaking through the Scriptures. Okay, so it's his church, and it is he that we should be following. We call it the regulative principle of worship. Everything we do must be done in submission to the owner of the church, God. And so when you have unrepentant homosexuals, New Age occultists, Freemasons in membership in churches right here in Omaha, Nebraska, we need spring cleaning. We desperately need a reformation uh, from the Lord. And so a lot of problems can be solved if we answer that first question correctly. Who owns the temple? It is God. Point B answers the question, who determines the ministries that should go on in the temple? And the answer is, again, obviously, Jesus. It's God. It's the owner of the temple. He had not authorized the so-called ministries that Caiaphas had begun to set up in the temple in fact, these ministries had actually driven out the core ministries that God had established in the temple. It's no wonder that Jesus drives them out. And the first one is listed there in verse 13. It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, central to the ministry 
of the temple was prayer, and he was indicating that any ministry that displaced prayer really needed to be gotten rid of, or at least it needed to be modified or done in a different way. And next to preaching, the most central ministry in the synagogues was prayer. They were called houses of prayer. What had happened in the temple was that uh, so many of these sellers of animals and these exchangers of money for various currencies around the world had crowded into uh, this uh, place of prayer that it, it had completely displaced prayer from there. In fact, this was the only place that the Gentiles were able to go to. Now, selling animals was not wrong. Uh, for years, they had had uh, at least four marketplaces that sold you know, very good animals that were unblemished and were fit to be offered as sacrifices in, in the temple. So that was not what was wrong. But what had happened in 28 AD is that Caiaphas the high priest sought to compete with those markets by introducing a market into the temple. And just for argument's sake, I think you could have justified what Caiaphas was doing here as providing convenience for worship. It was enabling people to uh, do what uh, would be very difficult to do otherwise. You'd have to hunt all over town to find an animal that would be suitable to, uh, to offer as a sacrifice. And it may not even have been a deliberate attempt to exclude Gentiles. Uh, most commentators believe that these Jews at that first century time were very aggressive in evangelism. Jesus had uh, said to the Pharisees, that you travel land and sea to find one proselyte or to make one proselyte. So they were very much involved in, in evangelism. So you could really th think of this as being seeker sensitive, you know? We're going to make it easier, much more convenient for people to be able to buy sacrifices. But here's the point. Christ was saying even something that is very legitimate, if it displaces prayer, is something that's not good. It is something that is not good. And even though we don't live in the first century in a literal temple and we don't uh, have the kinds of things that were going on back then, we have had ministries that displace prayer in the church of Jesus Christ. And so I think we need spring cleaning just like they did back then. And people often will come up with excuses. They will say, but what could be more important than XYZ ministry? What could be more important than what we're doing here? I think Caiaphas could have said exactly the same thing about those sacrifices. He could have said, what could be more important than providing good, unblemished sacrifices for God? This is the very heart of the Old Testament gospel. These sacrifices point to the coming Messiah. What could be more important than this? And Jesus was saying, find a way of doing it, but don't displace prayer. I think that was the point that he was making. So here's my question to you. How important is prayer to your life? It really is lay a guilt trip week, isn't it? Uh, like that woman said. But this is a question that the Scripture gives. How important is prayer to your life? Do you acknowledge Christ's kingship in this area of your life, or is He just a pleasant mascot that leaves you alone, lets you do whatever you want to do? The statistics on prayer in America are absolutely abysmal. Here's a statistic, and I, I haven't been able to verify it, but quite a number of people have quoted this, and it said the average number of minutes that a pastor prays every day is seven minutes. I just shake my head at that. It's just astonishing. The, the statistics are even worse. 
uh, for the average members, but seven minutes a day. That means that a lot of busyness have replaced prayer in a pastor's life. And here's what I try to remember. We do not really have to wait until he gets angry before we do spring cleaning. It's not a pleasant thing when he does spring cleaning. (coughs) Prayer is a litmus test for the Christian. In Isaiah 59, verse 16, God says that he marveled that there was no one to intercede. Now, I'm amazed that he would even use the word marveled for God because God's omniscient. He's never taken by surprise. Now, I realize it's an anthropomorphism, but he uses that term that God marveled that there was no intercessor to show to us how critically important intercession is within the church of Jesus Christ. And so it's my prayer that he would not marvel at our church. A second reason Christ cast these men out is given in the last phrase of verse 13. You have made it a den of thieves. Now, even though he's quoting from Jeremiah, he is calling these people thieves. And there was a good reason for that. Now, some years ago, I gave an extended exposition of that little phrase. I'm not going to do that today. But I do want to summarize what it is that made them into thieves. A lot of people have misconceptions on this, uh, and uh, I think it needs to be straightened out. In 28 AD, Caiaphas got into cahoots with both Rome and the Zealots in order to enrich his pockets. And it was a risky business that he engaged in, and eventually it got him into trouble because the Zealots hated the Romans and vice versa, and yet he had figured out the sweet deal that would give massive amounts of money to both Rome and the Zealots, and so they were okay with the plan, at least for the time, uh, time being. But here's what happened. Up until 28 AD, there had been a totally free market in terms of currency exchange and in terms of the animals that were brought into the temple. I've already mentioned that there were at least four markets on the Mount of Olives. You could bring your own. You didn't have to have any animal that was selected by uh, the temple authorities. And so following Old Testament provisions, it was a totally free market. You could use Roman money, Greek money, Tyrian money. There was all kinds of currencies that were in circulation in Jerusalem and that were used with each other as well as uh, buying animals for the temple. By the way, that's the way it was in early America. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. All the way up to the uh, war between the states, you had, for example, the Spanish uh, piece of eight. Uh, that was uh, uh, used uh, for, for currency, they, they did not have a monopoly. The American government did not have a monopoly on, on currencies. And have you ever heard the expression uh, two bits for a 25-cent piece? What that came from is uh, uh, there was an 8-bit. When you talk about, um, not 8-bit, uh, pieces of 8, one silver Spanish mill dollar was a piece of eight. Pieces of eight would be a number of them, but one piece of eight could be divided into eight pieces. They could cut it, and two of those would be 25 cents. It would be two bits. So that's where that came from. But anyway, the point is that all the way up to the Civil War, they had uh, various currencies, especially the Spanish uh, coins, were the ones that were very, very popular. And there's a great history book on that, Pieces of Eight, to show how grossly unconstitutional the monopoly on money uh, has become. Here's what our Federal Reserve notes say. This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. 
Uh, that means that it has to be accepted uh, if it is offered, no matter even if it's worthless. It has to be accepted. It's a form of theft. Anyway, that's what Caiaphas pulled off in uh, about 80 to, uh, 28, at least within his jurisdiction. He was appointed by Rome to be the high priest of the temple, which was a civil office. It was an ecclesiastical office, and it was one of the compromises that they had to make if they were going to be an approved religion. So they got licensed, they got incorporated, many of the synagogues did as well, but one of the provisions was, well, we get to tell you who's in charge, and if you go along with our policies, you will stay uh, in charge over there. Anyway, Caiaphas came up with a brilliant plan to get rich and gain further power. He mandated that everybody that came into the temple had to use temple currency at his exchange rates, of course, and they had to buy animals that were provided by his store that he just recently set up in A.D. 28 within the temple and at his prices. And so it was a total monopoly that he had established. And of course, he did it all in the name of efficiency, consistency, convenience, and quality control. We're doing this for your good. This is the way government always uh, does things. It's for your good. But it was a government-imposed monopoly that Jesus described as being theft. They were thieves when they did this. And where the zealots came in, where they were the, the, the ruthless enforcers of Caiaphas, uh, they saw themselves as freedom fighters against Rome, but because of this sweet deal that Caiaphas had set up, there was kind of a temporary peace because they were getting massive amounts of money, and anybody didn't cooperate, they get a knife in the belly. That's what the zealots were for. And several commentators point out that the Greek words for den of thieves is literally cave of bandits. It's precisely the phrase that was used to describe the zealots in the first century. And uh, some of you who have read a lot on the war between, uh, uh, yeah, the three factions, uh, 66 to 70 A.D., people say, how in the world did the zealots, uncouth, immoral people that they are, how did they get in control of the temple? Well, they had been in control of the temple ever since 28 A.D. That's how they got in control. It was through Caiaphas's, uh, 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 Caiaphas's um uh, sweet deal here that he gave to them. So this whole passage here speaks against a thieving fascist statism. Now, is the church of today filled with people who are asking Caiaphas's to do this? And I say, absolutely. Yes, they are. The church of Jesus Christ is filled with people who are statists and socialists, fascists, Fascism is just another form of socialism. There's not that much difference between communism and fascism, just different forms of socialism. All you have to do is examine the statistics of who the evangelical church has voted for election cycle after election cycle, and you will see that it is filled with people like this. I want you to notice in this text, he doesn't just drive out the money changers and the sellers of these uh, sacrifices, he drove out the people who were buying as well. And so the church of today stands in need of a new cleansing. The church is in bed with the state via incorporation, financial subsidies, IRS licensing, government grants to nonprofits, church lawyers who are basically G-men telling the church what your jurisdiction, what your limits are. And so that was the second reason Jesus cleansed the temple. The third reason that Christ was angry <clears throat> was that Caiaphas allowed those immoral zealots 
to be full members of the church. They were his bodyguards, enforcers, and salesmen. And I want to read you uh, the full prophecy that Jesus quotes in verse uh, 13 so you can see how bad they were. This is Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11. And this is describing the moral character of Caiaphas's enforcers. Jeremiah says, Will you steal, murder, and Josephus documents the examples of zealots' murders. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? That was the first example of the carnal Christian theory. They said, we're saved. We're delivered from hell, and so we can sin, is what Paul talked about. You know, let us uh, uh, sin that grace may abound. Anyway, he goes on, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. So whoever these thieves were, they had either been tolerated, but it, all the evidence seems to indicate, no, they had been specifically wooed, in order to enrich Caiaphas's pockets. And so this brings us all the way back to what we talked about earlier in terms of church discipline. The reason wickedness is tolerated in evangelical churches is because preaching against it will make the tithes go down or it'll make a wealthy patron leave. At the time of the Reformation, the three marks of the church were this. Pure preaching of the gospel, the proper administration of the sacraments, and the exercise, proper exercise of discipline. Now, if those are indeed marks of the church, then we are in desperate trouble because most churches don't engage in discipline at all. And they don't properly fence uh, the table of the Lord. And so it is uh, my belief that when a church is unwilling to cast out rebels, we're talking about rebels, we're not just talking about sin sinners, Christ must come as king and do his own spring cleaning. In other words, he's going to come and bring providential judgments. Commentators point out that this is actually a symbol, symbolic of the judgment that came against Jerusalem in 70 AD. So this is an incredibly relevant passage of why we need to be motivated to be promoting reformation in America. We need it. I don't want a spring cleaning. I don't want judgment. Uh, we need to be bringing our own uh, cleaning and uh, repentance uh, before the Lord. And it's relevant to our own sins. We need spring cleaning if we're prayerless. We need spring cleaning if we're statist. And we need spring cleaning if we don't care about holiness. I'm going to skip over points uh, C and D and go on to Roman numeral 2. Spring cleaning not only involves us in throwing things away, but also in restoring. And you've probably experienced that when you do a big cleaning, you find all kinds of things that you didn't remember that you had, and you bring them back into use. And decluttering can also save space as you throw things away, can save time for you. And uh, what happened here is that three things got restored in this chapter. Praise, ministry to others, and prayer. And we'll touch on the, the, the first two, but I just want to look at prayer once again because I think it's such an important topic. Verse 13, My house shall be called a house of prayer. On that particular day, prayer got restored 
to the temple. Because Mark 11, verse 16 says he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. He stayed there till evening. So finally, the Gentiles were able to have some peace and quiet. They were able to go into this place and have prayer. Uh, The decluttering enabled spiritual priorities to take place. And this was a symbol of the far greater restoration that Jesus would bring through Pentecost. See, there's both blessing, that's Pentecost, and judgment, 70 A.D. But Pentecost poured out the Spirit upon the people and ushered in unbelievable prayer and unbelievable blessings. Let me give you some of the examples of prayer in Acts. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. They were all with one accord in one place. They went up together at the hour of prayer. We will give ourselves continually to prayer. They prayed, they prayed, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Acts is a book that shows prayer being fully restored to the church, and it was to such a church that incredibly awesome things began to happen. I don't think we're going to ever have reformation or revival until the church wakes up and realizes we need to restore prayer. And so I would encourage you to join the, the WIN, a Women's Intercessory Network, or join the Men's Prayer Breakfast, or uh, join us for prayer on the occasions that it happens on Sunday, or start your own prayer group. There's no reason why you have to wait for somebody else to start one. You can get two or three families together and say, let's pray, but prayer needs to be present. A third thing that's needed in spring cleaning is gathering stuff and organizing it. If you can't find things, it doesn't help that you own them. And so it's gathering. I'm always losing stuff. So I need this uh, kind of uh, decluttering and, and gathering together. And there were hidden people that Christ gathered to himself. Verse 14 says, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So this gathering included evangelism and included mercy ministries. And I would encourage you, never go anywhere without having some tracks in your pocket. You know, just make sure they're stuffed in there so you can pull it out and maybe have two or three different kinds of tracks. You never know whom God is going to divinely bring into your lives. Or ask God to open your eyes. Lord, who can I strategically give to who is poor? How can I minister to people who are hurting? See, our church needs to be involved in a gathering ministry just like Jesus did. The Spring cleaning also requires division between things and discernment. Do I really still need this Hawaii shirt that I haven't worn for 10 years? You know, do I really need this keepsake? Is this an essential memory or is this something that's just clutter? And by the way, that's going to bring you into disagreements and arguments, husband and wife, uh, because one person thinks, I need to keep this, and no, 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 we need to get rid of that. Well, you had that kind of a disagreement happening with the scribes in verse 15. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Okay, they weren't too crazy with the things that Jesus thought were wonderful. This is wonderful stuff. They weren't too crazy with the singing of the, the, the children or the, the ministries of Christ. Uh, They wanted to throw those things out. And in the same way, our vision of what is important can be so skewed that what God considers important, we don't have the time or the patience for. I think we see it in our lives all the time. These priests no doubt thought that their worship was awesome. 
After all, it was professionals that were paid to sing, and, and it was artistically done, everything, time, down to the minute. Christ had absolutely no patience for that because he, he saw it did not come from a heart uh, that loved God. They had no patience for the non-professional singing of these children. They had no patience for the non-professional ministry uh, of Jesus that he loved. So obviously there's a little bit of a disagreement on housekeeping here. And apart from the Holy Spirit's illumination, any one of us can have our judgment skewed. And this is one of the reasons why we ought to make it our daily prayer, what David prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, ultimately, he's the one who's, who, who should be the judge as to what gets tossed and what stays, and uh, not us. Finally, he's a king who doesn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Verse 16, And said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? All that the scribes could hear was the nuisance of these children. Jesus saw their hearts. Jesus received their praise. But more importantly, He by His Spirit perfected their praise. That's a very interesting word to be applied to babies. Uh, when I was a Reformed Baptist, I was uh, taught that we should not allow our children to pray or to sing or to worship in the public worship place. Why? Because they said they're not believers. And the Bible's quite clear that the worship of an unbeliever is an abomination. It's unacceptable to the Lord. Now, even as a Reformed Baptist, I thought that was a little bit odd. But at least they were consistent. Their theology rejected infants, and so they threw out the baby with the bathwater. And uh, here's the point. It is possible to spring clean too much. It is possible to spring clean too much. Even husbands and wives have disagreements on what needs to be thrown out. And some people throw out too much. Five months later, they realize, we really needed that. And there are denominations that throw out too much. I believe that this passage not only endorses family-integrated worship, but it endorses the idea that our children are part of the church. In Luke 18, verse 16, Jesus took the little children and the babies into his arm, and he said, for of such is the kingdom of God. And here, Christ says that the worship, the praises of those children was not, it was perfected. It wasn't abominable. It was perfected. Now, thankfully, most Christians are inconsistent on this point, and even though they don't accept children as being members of the church, they teach them to pray, they teach them to worship, they include them in, and so I say, praise the Lord for inconsistencies. But they don't go as far as Jesus did. They don't include them in the church. That's what circumcision did in the Old Testament. That's what baptism does in the New Testament. And so I think it hints that children can be members of the church community in the New Testament just like they can in the Old, but I think it also hints we should not excuse our children from the main worship service so that they're not disturbing the adults, which is what happens in so many, uh, so many churches. I think it speaks to our family-integrated philosophy. You see, the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament did not admit children into the family they're already members of the family, whether they were circumcised or not. It admitted them into the church. 
And people think, whoa, 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 wait. If you admit children as full members in the church, then they're going to be able to vote even before they've got the discernment to vote. And they wait. It doesn't say that. It says nothing about voting or any of the other privileges that are in the church. It says that their presence needs to be here and their praises need to be in the church of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to listen to the call of God in Joel 2, verses 15 through 16. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, and the nursing babes. So that's the, mis- the minimum. They need to be present. So we've seen all kinds of things that needed spring cleaning back then, <clears throat> but I don't want us to get off the hook on some other things. I want to go through the top 10 reasons for cleaning a house one more time, and I want you to evaluate whether or not spiritually these things should be challenges for you. Reason number 10, someone asks, what died in here, and you show them. If any of your original spiritual passions that you had when you first became a believer have died and are rotting in the living room and you don't really care about the, 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 the smell that's there, I would encourage you to ask God, Lord, I recognize that's me. Please restore my spiritual sensitivities. Please restore my first love for you. <clears throat> Revelation 2.5 speaks to this problem. When it says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. How do you regain your first love? It's by doing the first works. First works are the works you did when you had that first love with the Lord. And he says, as you do the first works, your first love is going to be restored. And so if your spiritual passions have died, ask God to restore them. Top reason number nine. Dust on TV screen gives everybody comical Andy Rooney eyebrows. We don't, as I mentioned before, tend to notice the dust on our spiritual computer. We tend to notice the dust on everybody else's spiritual computer. And this is why I would encourage you not to get offended when people raise their eyebrows, their Andy Rooney eyebrows every once in a while at you. And uh, and instead what you should say is, what, what, oh, I've got... Dust on my computer screen? Okay, I will clean it. Uh, And I'm not encouraging you guys to be dust inspectors for other people. What I'm encouraging you to do is realize you probably are going to be having dust on your own computer screen, and so don't get offended if people once in a while raise their eyebrows at you. Reason number eight. When you win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, Ed McMahon refuses to get out of the van. Are there people that you used to be friends with who no longer come through the doors of your house? See, it may be Ed McMahon's fault. You know, it's often other person's fault, isn't it? It may be Ed McMahon's fault, but at least be open to the idea that you may have contributed to the broken fellowship. Read Ken Sandy's book, uh, Peacemakers, and see if there's anything you can do to restore that fellowship. Ask God to open your eyes. Lord, is there anything in me that's offended the Ed McMahons of this world? And maybe Jesus is going to say to you, hey, I know that that guy's messed up and he's got a lot of problems in his life, but I want you to be having a love that overlooks all of those sins. Yes, 
that has all the crunchies as you're going in their living room. Just overlook it. Not because God is, is, is not caring about his cleaning. He can deal with his cleaning, but because God wants you to work on your love. Now, there is a time when you say, hey, let's, let's get together and I'll help you clean up your house, okay? But be especially sensitive that God sometimes wants us to overlook the sins of others so that we can have that kind of a fellowship. Number seven. The so-called dust bunnies have sharp, snapping teeth. Have you become a harsh defender of your turf, of your ideas, of your philosophies, your positions? If so, that's usually an indicator that there's something indefensible about your positions. Because if you're right, there's no reason that you need to be tested. You can just trust God to open up other people's eyes in His own perfect timing. But if you constantly feel the need to get snappy, to bite people's heads off, to get irritated, uh, or in general to be on the attack, it may be an indicator that you need sp- spring cleaning. You know, when they're pointing out dust bunnies and it irritates you. Maybe it's because there's dust bunnies under your bed, right? Another way of saying this is that if every time somebody's dust mop comes in contact with your dust and you go on the attack and you say, oh, what a sinner you are, look at all the dust on your dust mop, it's an indicator you're not really interested in cleaning your own house, okay? Reason number six, your house gets hit by a twister and it actually looks better. You know, God sometimes brings disasters into our lives to make us realign 